Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. We're up to episode 41 of the series, and Lord Roberts and the British Army have taken control of most of South Africa. In this episode, we'll hear about the last pitched conventional battle of the Anglo-Boer War, the Battle of Diamond Hill. It's also unique for the fact that an earthquake struck the region east of Pretoria in the Transvaal Republic as the battle raged. But more about that in a while. The Free State Republic has fallen, so too the Transvaal Republic, but have they really? Their capitals have been seized by the British, but there are still thousands of Boer commandos willing to fight on. We heard last week how General Christian de Wett was making life difficult for Lord Methuen and others in the Free State. Now, our attention shifts back to the Transvaal and the area around the capital Pretoria in particular. Boer President Oom Paul Kruger has fled to Macharadorp in the east, along with his government, while back in Pretoria, burghers are trying to make up their minds about their next steps. The fighting is about to switch to unconventional warfare, guerrilla warfare, and the Boers are gathering under the leadership of General Louis Boerter. First, he decided to face off against the British at a sweeping group of hills that formed a natural semicircle called Donkerhook, which means dark corner. The English referred to this coming battle as Diamond Hill. This would conform to the recent style of fighting and was not strictly guerrilla tactics. With the Lord Kitchener in the south trying to tie down General de Wet, the coming fight was left to Lord Roberts and General Hamilton. By the 11th of June, Roberts had moved to the high ground about 15 kilometres east of Pretoria and was preparing to face the last real force in the Transvaal under Louis Boerte. This impending battle was crucial in Robert's eyes, and he knew if he could surround Boerte and crush this group of around 5,000 Boers, it would all be over. But if he could not defeat Boerte properly, then the war may be given an impetus, and both generals knew this. Furthermore, Pretoria would be threatened by the Boers, and by default, the entire railway line heading south back down towards Bloemfontein in the Free State and ultimately Cape Town. Roberts set up his HQ on a hill which gave him a view southeast down a long valley around 8 kilometres broad through which flowed Pinar's River. On the north side of the valley was a succession of hills occupied by Boerter's men astride the railway line to Delago Bay or modern-day Maputo in Mozambique. The prominent feature in this landscape was Diamond Hill which was to give its name to the battle and around 15 kilometres away from Roberts' HQ. He peered at this high ground with interest, so too did Boerter. Sitting with his brothers on one of the northern kopjes or hills was Denis Reitz, who we have followed since the start of this war in October 1899. He also peered out of his sangha, or well-protected wall of rocks, looking southwards on the morning of 10th of June 1900. It was a typically cold, high-felt morning, close to zero degrees Celsius, blue skies, no wind. They could hear the sounds of the British before the army marched into view, and what a sight it was for the Boers. 30,000 men were moving towards Boerter's burghers across a broad front and as they marched, their artillery shelled any high ground where scouts had spotted Boer positions. This form of rolling warfare was a fairly new idea. Mobile infantry and cavalry working alongside artillery, also drawn by horses, moving into positions, firing, picking up and moving to new positions, firing and so on. Call it rolling thunder to steal from another time and another war. Rates describes the scene. We, of the Pretoria Commando, took up a position in the nearest copies, but before long we were so heavily shelled that we withdrew, the other commandos also falling back. However, this was not a helter-skelter chaotic retreat. This was a disciplined movement by the Boers. 
The British were moving in a calculated way along both sides of the railway line eastwards, and the Boers were retreating in a calculated way too. Up to this point, goods continued to flow between the eastern Transvaal and the port of Delagoa Bay, bringing arms, ammunition and materiel into the high felt for the Boers, while they continued to export coal, agricultural products and even gold, which helped pay for the Boer war effort. The British knew they had to cut off this access to the crucial port. This was made more difficult by the fact that the Portuguese had adopted a neutral position, meaning that the British could not attack Delagoa Bay itself, which would obviously have been a simpler way to shut down the shipping and railway route. As Reitz explains, Boer troops were not exactly fighting. He writes in his informative book Commando that We pursued the same methods that we had employed in the Free State, falling back from hill to hill and rise to rise, firing when the opportunity offered, but not really fighting. In this manner, we retreated. Lord Roberts launched his attack against Boerta and tried to turn the Boer commander by launching two flank attacks using Hamilton on the right and General French, who led the cavalry, on the left. Then he sent forward his centre under Paul Carew. Hamilton was the first to experience Boerta's clever use of the sloping ground as he emerged into a valley from the south and found that the enemy line had extended along what was known as the Tigerpoort Range. That provided a curved barrier to the north, so Hamilton was staring at a kind of amphitheatre before him, all rising ground. Hamilton's men marched straight into this curve, which meant they were beginning to bunch. The result was a series of hard-fought encounters at one point, then another in an arc of 25 kilometres. It was in one of these encounters that the distinguished cavalry officer Lord Airlie was killed, leading his lances back from a fruitless charge. Only the arrival of the infantry in numbers cracked the Boer defences as they stormed a copy in front of Diamond Hill. The Boers there fell back in some confusion, and Hamilton asked Roberts if he could continue the attack, thereby punching a hole through the Boer defences. But once again, Roberts demurred, insisting that more troops be brought up, and that gave the Boers time to regroup. By nightfall, Boerter's line was still intact, curving before Hamilton's line, which meant he was technically surrounded on three sides. On the right flank of the attack, General French had run slap-bang into one of the most terrifying Boer commanders, Cours de la Rey. French had advanced into a nest of hills, and de la Rey's men had forced his men to dismount from their horses and seek shelter amongst the rocks to fight from this cover. French then tried to send a messenger, a captain of the guard, along with a small escort to Lord Roberts, but the Boers had already swept past and shot the escort down but the captain managed to find his way through with great difficulty and told Roberts of the crisis. The commander-in-chief then returned to his base in Pretoria that evening and felt harassed. Roberts's two flanks, which involved mounted troops and cavalry, were supposed to overrun the Boers, but they themselves had been outflanked and almost surrounded. It was a stalemate that night, however, as the Boers did not have the numbers to take advantage of Roberts's lethargy. That evening, Lord Roberts received information that caused him great relief. General Christian de Wet had been unable to defeat Methuen and was retreating away from the railway line through to Bloemfontein. Boer commander was now heading west. That meant Roberts could concentrate his central force and target Louis Boerter's 5,000 men arraigned along the Tigerport Ridge. So it was then that Roberts ordered Hamilton to charge Diamond Hill the next day and at noon they formed up an extended front. No more tight clusters of soldiers moving slowly towards the Boers. The British had learned their lesson. Hamilton's division moved forward, supported by the Derbys, the CIV, the Sussex and the Coldstream Guards. 
Up on the hill, Denise Reitz was waiting for them along with his comrades. As the shelling became heavy, the Boers were forced to remain hidden behind their stone shelters or kranzes, Reitz says. We were shelled to such an extent that one dared scarcely look over the edge of the breastworks for the whirring of metal and the whizzing of bullets. Several of our men were wounded, and my brother, Helmar, was shot below the eye. My other brother led him down into the valley, for he was partially blinded. Then there occurred a most unusual natural event that the Boers discussed as a kind of portent. Reitz explains, Shortly after my brothers left, there was an earthquake. The first I have ever experienced. It came with a loud rumbling and the ground rocked beneath us like a ship, while stone fell from the works causing much alarm, for disturbances of this kind are practically unknown in South Africa. That remains true to this day. The country is geologically stable and earthquakes are rare events. But for the Boers fighting against the British on that tiger port, it was a message from God, Reitz says. We suffered a bombardment from above and an earthquake from below at one and the same time, and this remained a topic for wandering discussion for months afterwards. It was shortly after the quake that a British Luddite shell from a howitzer fell almost directly on our intrepid Boer narrator. Rates was knocked unconscious, but recovered by late afternoon. That's when his small group were attacked by Roberts's infantry, but the Boers were waiting and shot the first 15 who emerged close to their position. Then the sun sank and the biting cold settled upon both Brit and Boer. This is one of the little-known realities in South Africa. Nighttime in midwinter on the high plains is bitterly cold. During the day, there are blue skies and the temperature can rise to 22 or 23 centigrade in midwinter, then at night drop to below freezing as there are no clouds to hold in the radiant heat and the high felt is a mile above sea level. Rates and his group tried to save three of the wounded Englishmen who had not died of exposure, carrying them to a fire, but one did die overnight of his wounds. Roberts had now focused his attention on the centre of this line and poured heavy fire on the area defended by the Zarps or the Johannesburg police. Twice these men threw back the English attack, but they were taking a pounding from the deadly accurate British artillery. Boer General Delaray had tried to shore up that position, moving men and guns from less active parts of the front, while also trying to overrun General French and his cavalry. The Boers, though, were stretched too thinly along the ridges, and Delaray and Boerter could not afford to weaken the line at any point. The British broke through Boerter's line, killed and wounded many of the Zarps, who continued fighting throughout the late afternoon and into the night. But still, the British failed to capture all the high ground, and for a third night, Roberts's large army bivouacked and waited for daybreak. Roberts returned to his HQ in Pretoria once more depressed, and ordered Hamilton to renew the attack in the morning. But after dark, General Louis Boerter called his leadership together and gave the order to retreat from the Tigerpoort. Denise Reitz and his brothers found their horses and fell back five kilometres until all they could hear was the sounds of the felt and the breeze. The next morning, the British renewed the attack. However, the Boers once more had disappeared under cover of darkness. And thus ended the Battle of Diamond Hill, one of the few battles that had ever taken place during an earthquake. On the 13th of June 1900, Boerter's army retreated to the north. They were chased as far as Irlands River Station, only 25 miles from Pretoria, by mounted infantry and Delisle's Australians. Forty-four years after the battle, British General Ian Hamilton wrote in his memoirs that 
The battle which ensured that the Boers could not recapture Pretoria was the turning point of the war. The British had lost 28 killed, 145 wounded, while the Boers had 30 killed and an unknown number wounded and captured. One thing worth noting is the fact that unlike earlier battles, the Boers had more men killed than the British, a fact not lost on Louis Boerta, who now would introduce the British to guerrilla warfare. And of course, he was not alone. The other generals who were to become infamous were Christian de Wett, Marnie Meritz, and Kurs de la Rey. While the first phase of this war was characterised by frontal assaults, the next phase would be characterised by a scorched earth policy the British believed would starve the Boers into giving up. Unfortunately, this policy was to reinforce an implacable hatred between English and Afrikaans in South Africa as the scorched earth concept led inexorably to the incarceration of Boer and black civilians in concentration camps where tens of thousands were to die of disease. That had an implication for South Africa and Southern Africa and the legacy of a handful of generals from England, India and the Sudan was to stretch well into the 20th century. It would mutate politics, destroy relationships between black and white, and radicalise Boer and black, and ultimately lead directly to what we know as apartheid. The British generals would go on to face the terror of the First World War and the Western Front. South Africa is dotted with incredibly beautiful mountain ranges, gorges and valleys. The Boers were to use these scenic routes as they proceeded with their implacable fight against the British. And next week, we'll ride with both the commandos and the British army as they began the next phase of what was to become a truly dirty war. In many ways, it predates Afghanistan and Vietnam and even the Croatian and Serbian conflicts. This war introduced the idea of the ideal form of the guerrilla destroying the empire's organized infrastructure and technology versus grit and know-how. Most believed there would now be a period of mopping up by the British, and in England, the public had become wary of the reports of impending victory. This was a never-ending war, apparently. The Boxer Rebellion in China had fixated the public back in Britain, but Roberts had decided on a two-fold campaign from here on in South Africa. Two swift expeditions would be set loose, the first against Boerter and Kruger in the east of the Transvaal, and the second against the Vet and the Stain government in the Free State. In the next few months, the coverage of the war in Britain resembled the Vietnam War coverage. Generals were criticised. The newspaper reports began to take on a different tone. In both the Vietnam and Anglo-Boer Wars, the governments of the strongest imperial powers of the age fought with overwhelming force against much smaller citizen armies. In both wars, as the fighting dragged on and on, people back home began losing their moral certainty about the fight. And as with the USA, in Britain, the political ramifications were eventually telling. Many liberals there felt that the Unionist government of England had shown complicity with Cecil John Rhodes in fomenting this war, but Queen Victoria and jingoism ruled the day. It was her diamond jubilee after all. Liberal politicians voiced their doubt about the Tory government's South African policy, but for now, they had little effect. So, as the politicians wrestle, we'll call a halt to this week's podcast. Next week, we'll enter July 1900, where the British learn to demand more ammunition when they come across a pretty bit of scenery. Just a quick shout out to all my listeners in Dallas, Texas. Lovely to see the global interest in this obscure and yet fundamentally important war. So please try to rate the podcast on iTunes, take a look at the website abwarpodcast.com and DM me on Twitter if you want a quick chat.
That's at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> Hoe breng mij terug naar jouw transval, daar waar mijn zaar is.